0: Business
1: Power Hour Welcome to it. It's the Business Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Monday, the twenty first of February, and it's a great show coming up over the next sixty minutes. One of the upcoming speakers at the Business Investment Conference, uh, Stafford Macy, Many will know him as the former Google SA CEO. He popped into our studios to give us a taste of what he'll be speaking about next week. Spoiler alert, it's cryptocurrency. Then it's a double header from my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts, who chats to both currency expert at Treasury One Andre Soliers and David Shapiro, a veteran investor in this country. Finally, our partner, the Financial Times, has all your international business news. Now to your news headlines.
2: Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
3: Gauteng Premier David Makura has announced plans to establish the country's first cannabis hub as part of a 45 billion rand development in the Val River area. Presenting his State of the Nation address on Monday, Makura said that the cannabis hub will primarily focus on on growing cannabis for medical use and would not be sold recreationally. The government has identified cannabis as a key economic differentiator for South Africa in the coming years. In his February State of the Nation address, President Sol Ramaphosa said that his cabinet will fast-track regulations for the cannabis industry in South Africa, estimating that hemp and cannabis production can create as many as 130,000 new jobs for the country. Police Minister Becky Kele said he received information on the identities of the 12 instigators of the July unrest from a member of the public. On Monday, Tele told the South African Human Rights Commission's hearing into the July unrest that he usually received information from members of the public because his contact number was available on the internet. I have a phone number that is on the internet. It irritates, but it helps because you really do get things that you wouldn't if your number wasn't known. Someone came to brief me, especially on the people who were pushing this on the internet, he said. Taylor said 19 people had been arrested for allegedly instigating the unrest. Two of the cases were withdrawn, and the others were still before the courts. The government has reduced the interval between COVID-19 shots and will now offer mix-and-match booster jabs to adults, the health department announced on Monday morning. It said homologous boosting is preferred if both vaccines are available at sites, but heterologous boosting is permitted if the person seeking a vaccine wants a different booster or has experienced adverse events with their primary course. South Africa currently offers people either a single Johnson & Johnson shot or two shots of Pfizer's vaccine six weeks apart as their primary course, followed by a booster of the same shot. And now it's on to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was lower at
4: 75700 in The price action... Santam and Kumba are in the green, while Steinoff, Process, and Naspis are deep in the red. The two latter because Big Brother Tencent was down by more than 6% on regulatory concerns coming out of the East this morning. The Jailtack crypto basket is up 1% on the day. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 16 cents to the dollar. 20 Rand 63 cents to the pound and 17 Rand 17 cents to the euro. Gold was well up over the weekend at $1,896 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 30,000 Rand. Ren crude is trading at $94.10 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency is slightly lower, trading at 570,000 Rand per coin. In the financial news, Sassel reported a 20% drop in headline earnings as favourable market conditions and higher gross margins were offset by operational challenges at the group's Secunda plant. Sassel, a producer of synthetic fuels and chemicals, on Monday reported headline earnings had dropped to 9.5 billion rand for the six months ended December, compared with 12 billion rand reported for the comparative period in 2020. Earnings before interest and tax was 12% higher at 24.3 billion rand. The Group's gross margins had improved in line with macroeconomic conditions. Despite uncertainty, there are now clear signs of a recovery to pre-pandemic levels, Sasol's CEO, Fleetwood Chobla, said in a pre-recorded presentation. Lower production out of the South African operations was, however, disappointing, said Chobla. This is owed to a coal production shortfall at Sasol Mines where a series of incidents in the final quarter of 2021 hit production targets. While delivering value to shareholders is a key focus for Sasol, the groups decided it was not prudent to declare an interim dividend. The dividend will be restored when we are sure we can do this on a sustainable basis, said Grobler, who notes a few asset disposals are yet to be concluded while awaiting regulatory approvals.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Michael Apple. With me in the studio, it's a great pleasure to have Stafford
5: Macy. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: I don't want to ask you to get the let the cat out the bag mm. too much, but you are a speaker at the upcoming Business Investment Conference, what we call BNC three. Uh, it starts next week. You're going to be speaking about a space a lot of people are nervous about. A lot of people are nervous because they simply just don't know about cryptocurrency. Right. So, uh, give us a little taster. Firstly, who are you in a, in a two-minute sprint? Right. Who are you? Why should people know who Stafford Massey right. is? Uh, if you have a computer in this country, you should it know why.
5: Um, and cryptocurrency. So, who I am right now is I sit on two boards. Um, the CSIR, from a science perspective, and a, what we do as a country, investing in research. That uh, body is the most undervalued body, body in South Africa, in terms of... What it does and it, the impact that it has, and the intellectual property housed in that institution is, is astounding. And I love being on that board. I've been on that board for about, I think, almost four years now. I was on the board of Advotec before, for seven and a half years, and uh, jumped off that board. Um, felt that I I did my time, and then I jumped onto the uh, Discovery Bank board. So I'm on the board of Discovery Bank, uh, looking at things from the inner workings from a banking perspective, and. Uh, looking at what they're doing as a startup bank in South Africa, which is quite fascinating. But I'll be speaking in a personal capacity. I, uh, I've i been in the technology space for a long time. You know, I'm 47 now. I've been in it since the mid-90s. And I've been lucky enough to grow up with technology in terms of its big epoch changes, for lack of a better term. You know, when the internet came to be, I was lucky. I was working at Telcom um, in the middle 90s. And we got to touch the internet for the first time because it was a monopoly company and no one else could. And I saw the internet there for the first time, which is fascinating. And I'll never forget that. That's where I had my goosebump moment was when the internet didn't have a user interface, but we were capable of communicating and exchanging information on a global basis with open protocols. And that was just, you know, emailing with SMTP, uh, using HTTP, using TCPIP, these protocols that were freely built and written by engineers out there and we were utilizing them to exchange information. And we thought this is gonna change mankind. We just, the internet was loud and screamy back then, but we got goosebumps because of what we were capable of doing with it. Um, and then I moved to the United States with a multinational software company, Novell was one of the biggest software companies in the world at the time. And I worked at the corporate head office w- with Eric Schmidt, and he was a gentleman that went on to become the CEO of Google. Uh, So we worked for him in Utah. And uh, that's where I had my second major goosebump moment. And that's when I bumped into people like Nat Friedman, de Casa And these were people that had built communities in the open source software space. And I'll never forget going to MIT's campus, visiting with them and watching them lecture and walking away there, just just goosebumps. Because I knew open source software was going to be big. I wanted to ask you about that. Because throughout your career,
1: you've been driven i wouldn't say by emotion but by a gut feel every time you get goosebumps you said the first time you dealt to the internet yeah. and the user interface and then the second was open source software and i suspect you're going to get to a third goosebumps yeah, moment
5: yeah the third goosebumps for me was when six seven years ago um someone installed a crypto wallet for me and I didn't understand how it worked. You went and, to learn. And I was like, what's this Bitcoin thing? Like, guys, explain it to me. I know, like, everyone's talking about it. All my engineers are speaking about it. Like, what is this thing? And at the time, I'll never forget, I was at Thumbs Up. And we built this little payment device, and it went global. And it was, like, one of the last... The Pebble, yeah. Huh? The Pebble, yeah. The yeah. Payment Pebble, which, which we invented. And, yeah, so we were in this money space, in this exchange of value space. And, you know, t- take a look at the context from where I came. I had built this invention with my team we invented this little thing called a payment pebble you plugged it into a phone and it changed the phone into a card acceptance device mm. so we created secure rails over a non secure platform to exchange keys with a back end to unlock value and exchange value over the wire with this very arcane back end right so if you take a look at how we did it the payment pebble plugged into a phone there was software on the phone there was software and firmware and hardware and keys and crypto on that device so it could read your card. So when you put your card in there, it would activate and unlock the keys and do the necessary key exchange so you could do the transaction securely. Mm. Then we'd go over the wire and then we'd connect to this PCI DSS mainframe backend bank, right, lots of stuff, very secure. Um, And all the things that get put in there to make that secure, you know, people, process and technology that enables you to have the assurance that your bank account is there and that I can send money from Alec, from myself to Alec and Alec to myself. That fabric is incredibly thick, complex, arcane, doesn't change often. And then suddenly someone gave me a crypto wallet. I understand my background, right? So I was the guy that had founded a company. I had these incredible engineers and we had built incredibly arcane technology, right? From firmware, hardware, manufacturing, key exchanges, key facilities, key injection facilities. I mean crypto 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 and then suddenly here was this crypto wallet and i could send value from one person to the other without any need for any of that
1: i wanted to ask you about that do you feel slightly conflicted by virtue of the fact that you sit on the board of a bank which is essentially the middleman that is cut out by cryptocurrency and the blockchain
5: i think that's a strong statement I right. think um, to say that a middle, the bank is the middleman that will get, get cut, cut out, I don't think so. Um, I can't speak on behalf of Discovery, and obviously I can't disclose anything within that organization, but I think banks have a role to play. I don't think, I mean, it's as, it's as wild They're saying card is going to kill cash, right? So, but the biggest competitor that Visa and MasterCard and everyone else has isn't the next card company. It's not American Express, it's cash. Cash is still the fastest growing form of payment in the world. It's still the biggest challenge. It's, it's bigger, cash-based transactions in South Africa are arguably 30 to 40 to 60 times bigger than the formal economy. So the bank movement of money. So, so no, I don't think crypto displaces. I think crypto gives us things that we could before never, th- we never thought was imaginable is now imagined, it's now reality. And that's incredible. So so when I got my crypto wallet for the first time, that's when I had my biggest goosebumps that I ever had in my life from a technology, mm-hmm. a professional perspective, right? And suddenly, yeah, I was, and I was exchanging value with another human being, and there was no intermediary, and there was no bank required, and there was no government required, and there was nothing. And it was more secure than any of the stuff that we had built. That was a mind blow, right? Because yeah. think about the context, right? Me, as this guy that built all this bank fabric, mm understood bank fabric extraordinarily well, had deep res- has, I have deep respect for bank fabric. And here was this thing exchanging value more securely. And I was like, wait, this guy, and it took me, the first time I looked at it, I was like, no, no. What, what have I no. been doing my whole life? What, no, actually, I, I refused it. I thought, this is rubbish. Huh. It's like, no, I, and then all my history kicked in. Because I was doing exactly what everyone was doing when I told them about the internet, what everyone was doing when I told them about open source software. When I first, for the first time, touched book, I was like, it's rubbish, Mm -hmm. never. But then when you study it and you start to understand it, it is incredible because it's not a single goosebump moment. It is a continuous, significant amount of epiphany that hits you nonstop from the white paper all the way through to experiencing it when you actually moving value in this world it's extraordinary as you join me in conversation with chris hunsinger the
1: da shadow minister of transport as a starting point uh, mr hunsinger i just want you to explain uh, the objective behind the road accident fund what's it supposed to do and i want to ask whether it's been succeeding in that mandate uh, in recent years
6: Well, firstly, good morning, Mr. Apple. Thank you for the opportunity. Greetings to all the viewers and listeners, and thank you for covering this very important uh, matter and giving attention to this um, in this conversation. The Road Accident Fund's core intention is supported constitutionally to support road crash victims with financial compensation. Overarchingly, it's been in existence for a number of years. With varied success, and the success rate is greatly determined by the way it's managed, uh, and also certain interventions in the way that it's described within the Road Accident Fund Act uh, to such an extent that one can describe it as a bleeding fund. Currently, its contributions is derived from um, fuel. Uh, each litre of fuel um, is then potentially contributing to this fund, which then upon a claim is considered and uh, if successful, paid to road crash victims.
1: Now, a few weeks ago, the I think it was the 10th of February, the Road Accident Fund went to court on an urgent basis seeking an order that the Auditor General not publish or make... Its audit findings public regarding the financial position of the Road Accident Fund. Why is that, do you think?
6: Well, uh, from the Democratic Alliance side, from our side, we view this application in a very, very serious light. It is an effort to intervene in a natural process which uh, is described in the uh, Public Finance Management Act um, in the following procedure, whereas the Auditor General audits books, and then it is tabled to Parliament. And this is a process which, in essence, is managed in the Act by the word must. And therefore, there is just no alternative to this. Um, options, uh, Other options in law and legislation uh, would include the word may. But in this case, in terms of all the steps that need to be followed, it is, uh, it is clearly described with a must. The Road Accidents Fund's um, attempt, therefore, then to avoid the Attorney General of and Treasury then as a department to then submit the books obviously raises a lot of question marks. And the particular context is very important then because eight months prior to this, about June, July last year, the Minister of Transport, Minister Fakile Mbalula, proudly announced Um, that the Road Accident Fund is in a um, 3.2 billion rand surplus, and also uh, that the year-on-year income has increased with 152%. So we were keenly awaiting the books, uh, the statements, the balance sheets, um, and now suddenly there's this intervention um, by the CEO um, of the Road Accident Fund then to avoid any insight in the actual numbers and figures of the books.
1: So is the Road Accident Fund, in essence, asking the court to condone something unlawful? Because as you pointed out, audit findings must be presented to Parliament within a month of its first sitting. So is my understanding correct then?
6: Absolutely, your understanding is correct and it raises a lot of suspicion. Um, This, um, however, cannot be just viewed in isolation. There's been a prior court um, approach uh, in April of 2021. The court was approached uh, and the Road Accident Fund was successful in uh, getting an additional 180 days grace period. This is then in extension to the 120 days in which they then should settle a claim and at least make an offer to the claimant. Um, This was followed up in September last year in 2021 uh, where a further application was lodged um, simply because they could not adhere to this grace period and um, uh, then asked for a further extension. So this led up to uh, the current condition um, and these interventions by the Road Accident Fund and um, particularly the CEOs, uh, is not a strange thing. As far back as uh, 2015, we had one major intervention where the the fraud investigation uh, unit, uh, task team, was simply shut down. Um, And um, this was a unit that would investigate internal um, issues around corruption and fraud fraud. Um, And this unit was simply shut down. Funny enough, a year after that, in 2016-17, the Road Accident Fund had a clean audit. Um, And now again in 2019-20, they have received a clean audit and now suddenly they, you know, approach the court not to have their books revealed. So, you know, there's a history of avoidance and there are particular interventions of avoidance and now Total ignorance of the uh, Public Finance Management Act, which is the overarching legal custodian or watch um, description in legal terms of accountability and ethical conduct. And they're simply challenging this.
1: If the RAF fails on, on, let's call it the first leg of its case, um, to gag the Auditor General, the... Findings of the report they want suspended for six months in order to smooth things over with the Auditor General. You've just explained that this sort of request for relief isn't it un, isn't unprecedented. It's not unusual for the RAF to take this approach.
6: It is not unusual for the RAF um, and uh, they have over the years um, you know tried many sort of ways and avenues. Um, One other element which um, they used as nothing more than a delay tactic because all these efforts one can probably put under the heading of efforts of trying to delay the volume of claims. Um, One other effort which they have um, successfully pushed through was the option for direct claims, whereas in the current legislation it is quite clear that you can only be represented by a legal representative. Um, And they simply had their own personal interpretation around this and pushed for direct claims, also in an effort then to handle the claims themselves. um, And it also proved a failure um, because currently... uh, it is it is terrible uh, to experience, uh, you know, the, the personal experiences of people waiting for claims, uh, not just how long they, they have to wait for claims, but also their conditions while having to wait. So the extension from the court side last year um, in April 2021 to extend uh, the 120 days in which a claim has to be settled in terms of an offer, 280 days already was bad for claimants. And we would like to see a system um, where the claimant's position is is prioritized uh, rather than the organization, the entity. What simply needs to happen here is the entity's way of administering and managing the process needs to be straightened out. And for that, we need to improve legislation. Now, the government's effort to improve the legislation Um, was spearheaded by the Road Accident Benefit Scheme, which was the Rabs Bill, um, which we successfully stemmed uh, at the beginning of the sixth term in Parliament uh, in that all the opposition parties um, uh, stood together and simply rejected this um, so that it could not be passed.
1: Now, I've read that the, the audit into the road accident fund concluded that their liabilities um, exceeded 360 billion rand. They are disputing this, is that correct?
6: They are disputing this, claiming that it's nothing more than 30 billion rand, which comes as a big surprise because all along uh, during uh, the RAPS bill, you know, the 300 billion figure was used as a motivation for change. And we argued that the RAPS bill is not the only form of change. It certainly is an option. It is no option anymore. But certainly there are amendments to the current road accident fund that rather should be considered than introducing a second bill because this would have had to function in tandem with the current system um, of supporting the road accident fund. So in other words, we would have had two Um, different fuel levies uh, being sort of fed into the old Road Accident Fund and then the new Rabsville Fund, which we simply cannot afford. Um, So, uh, therefore, you know, that wasn't seen as an option. Um, In terms of financing, uh, current um, Road Accident Fund is is fed by fuel uh, consumption of motorists, Um, And this then uh, to an extent of 48% um, of the the total um, fund is the the fuel um, price. Uh, Taxes and levies are about 32% to 33%. And of that 11% is the road accident fund uh, levy. But if you look at this over a period of 12 years, Um, the basic fuel price has increased with uh, 119%, whereas the road accident fund portion has increased with 425%. So this is definitely not sustainable. So two things are not sustainable here. Uh, The fund and also not the way which our uh, claim victims are treated. Um, And here we have the road accident fund then uh, putting in, in dispute, you know, the, the total number of outstanding claims, and we actually welcome this court case because then finally we could see what actually is the number um, of uh, claims um, in the twenty nineteen twenty financial statements. Um, just below forty two billion rand um, was the was the total income which is about 4 billion rand per month on average. And of that, um, they claim 93% were claims. So it's a total amount of 304,962 claims that was received in 2019-20. So this stands to be tested. So it's one thing to claim that you suddenly, you know... (laughs) Have thirty billion in deficit, not three hundred billion. It's another thing to prove this to court. So, in one way, we do welcome this opportunity, and we will set, certainly test uh, these aspects and claims.
1: Well, as you mentioned, since it's funded by the the fuel levy, which you know every time you put in a, a liter of fuel, you you're funding the RAF. It Surely, it must be in the interests of the taxpayer. To know the financial position of this entity. And on that note, do you expect the fuel levy to go up on Wednesday's budget speech?
6: Um, absolutely, it is the right of every motorist. And uh, that is our position, uh, you know, that we should take whatever contributes, whoever contributes um, is the one to account to. And therefore, um, the current condition, the way the road accident fund is managed over the past years, is not acceptable. Um, And it is not fair to the motorist um, to firstly ask cooperation on the one hand, which all of us as motorists accept, um, whether we personally claim from the fund or not, we accept uh, that it is fair to have this cover and this form of insurance, although it is not the only form of insurance and certainly not the only way to compensate someone that's been in a crash. But that's open for speculation and debate in terms of other ideas and and ways to restructure it. Uh, But in principle, accountability uh, and ethical conduct uh, should absolutely, absolutely be guaranteed. And therefore, yes, it is the right of every motorist to know exactly what the books are. And that is what the Public Finance Management Act stands for, that the Auditor General must audit the books and it must be submitted to Parliament. And we in Parliament, as the public representatives, will demand this. And that is our position. Uh, and anything that sort of diverts from that principle, we will not accept.
1: As for Wednesday's budget speech, what do you expect there in terms of the fuel levy or other levies?
6: Um, I do expect that um, the fuel levy will be increased, um, simply because we have a backlog um, not to be taken lightly. But whether it's 300 billion or 30 billion, the backlog must be eradicated. There must be an improved system of management. We need to fix roads because, in fixing roads, we prevent accidents and crashes. So, uh, the road accident fund should actually be in credit, it should contribute uh, towards improving conditions and, through this, avoiding crashes and accidents through which people get get hurt and are killed.
1: In December last year, uh, the President announced that the Special Investigating Unit would be looking into the affairs of the Road Accident Fund. And I just want to quote here from the SIU statement. It says, The SIU investigation will focus on payments made by RAF to service providers in a manner that was contrary to applicable legislation, policies and instructions issued by National Treasury, and payments made in a fraudulent manner. Is there some connection, you believe, between seeking to gag the AG and this sort of investigation?
6: I believe that there should be a permanent uh, task team within the Road Accident Fund. Given the structure, given the national presence, given the footprint that they have, there should be a permanent internal um, investigations task team um, which should be linked to a tribunal I also believe that um, there should be an extension of the checks and balances, which are all part of the proposals which we have made through which the current road accident fund and its functioning can be improved. In fact, we submitted 14 different um, aspects which we believe can change um, and stop this financial bleeding of the road accident fund. I'm also in contact with several specialists and professional stakeholders who are desperate to contribute and to add value to the current situation with solid and firm proposals, how the road accident fund can be changed um, and improved in its functioning. This, apart from other options uh, through which the same compensation can be covered, either through insurance or liability cover, or a hybrid of these uh, different um, aspects. But certainly there are other options um, through which the situation can be improved. Another big aspect is also the free hand of, um, you know, what one can claim, what one can ask. So certainly um, certain, um, certain restrictions should, should be considered also in terms of legal fees. The current situation that we have is that Um, nearly 98% of all claims are simply simply dragged to court. So you have a legal expense on the one side of the claimant, but you also have a legal defense expense on the side of the road accident fund. Now, given this high percentage of litigation and costs related to this, very few, about 1%, actually land in court uh, and go through a trial. Um, so again this is just a way through which uh, uh, time is 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 bought um, and um, therefore everything is extended in instead of um, you know making an offer and getting it settled.
1: just say that again 98 percent is this the RAF disputing 98 percent of claims?
6: Yes, 98 percent on average um, is disputed immediately upon uh, you know a claim offer.
1: Is this yeah. the same RAF? Correct me if I'm wrong here. I remember a story of the RAF renting chairs at 666 rand a chair. And I think that was per month. And I remember 666 because of the devil's number. And I remember that. That was several years ago. Is this the same? This is the same RAF, right?
6: yes this this is the same raf um where it's been covered in the media um uh, that have been rented chairs at this and this is because uh, offices have been cleaned out by lawyers acting on behalf of their claimants um to to settle you know the claim um simply because they uh, drag uh, the process out and they avoid um. You know, paying it. Um, so it's also a mechanism of buying time. Um, and the only remedy which um, attorneys then have in representing their clients would then be to summons and like claim on assets and then drag out the chairs and tables and computers, which they then rent so that the you know, next summons wouldn't work. Oh,
1: Chris Hunsinger, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
6: Thank you for covering this very important topic. David
4: Shapiro, veteran JSC analyst. Two big commodity counters released results this morning, Sasol and Anglo-American. Let's start with the former. Good performance, no dividend. Fair retail story the last two years. What's your high-level analysis telling you on Sasol's results?
7: You know, I, I think we're going to talk Amplats as well. They both fit into the same category. When you look at commodity companies, What's under their control is production and costs. What's out of their control are pricing and the currency. You know, those are the two. So you have to measure all of those together. And both companies had blowouts in terms of uh, pricing. So Sassel was supported by a massive increase in the Brent oil price and a big increase in chemical prices, which was in their favor. But credit to management having turned the ship around. I mean aided and abetted by much better Brent oil price and by better chemical prices. Yes, input is also was, you know, is also a part of their uh, uh, ethylene goes in and you come out with polyethylene and that. But those prices and the chemical prices helped them. So now how, you, know, you say, what, how do we look forward? You know, are they on the right track to keep that going? Possibly, yes. I think I think they will. Will we see the kind of returns that we saw this year again? No, you can't. You know, you can't expect that. So, but you know, I'm I'm so pleased that management is on the right track. They've brought down debt. They've still got massive debt. You know, don't don't ignore it. But they're generating the kind of cash that can actually reduce it. So, I think you've got to make a call on where you think oil's going. I think it's going to hold up at these prices. The rand will hold up. Now it's up to uh, operational efficiencies for them to produce uh, decent profits. And they've got it, you know, they're coming off a low base. So so uh, they had bad production in, in South Africa. They can improve that. They, they're still getting Lake Charles right, so they can improve that. So I think now it's now it's management, you know, and we'll see how they Interestingly,
4: do. Interestingly, Sasol's sort of pivoted from a pure oil counter to, if I look at the EBITDA number, half oil, half chemicals, Oil and chemicals prices have both been robust since March 2020, hence Sassel going up by multiples. Chemicals businesses are genuinely valued at higher multiples, which I read is more sustainable, therefore better going into the future. Am I misunderstanding this?
7: No. Look, and, and I mean, both are used in industry, so there's a very tight uh, connection with uh, with industry, you know uh, the product that they produce. So, if you think that there's going to be global growth and demand's going to be there, then you're on the right track. You know they can maintain those margins and they can do well. You know oil is 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 much more difficult to read and the production of oil, the refinement of oil. So you're dead right. It's a much more sustainable business. That's why they shifted. You know that's why they shifted away from gas to liquids to uh, much more on much more of the uh, chemical production. So I, you know, I'm not a pear, I'm not a a pear, I mean a bear. (laughs) I'm I'm generally bullish. And I I know we're going through quite a rough time now with the news. It's not easy to digest from inflation to the Russia-Ukraine problem and that. But overall, investment, business investment looks robust. And I think we're going to, you know, we're in for a good period of business investment. I don't want to say investment because that, that suggests, you know, investors, you and me buying some shares and that. But I'm talking business investment, the fixed stuff that goes, you know, build factories and, and build businesses. I think that's pretty robust at the moment. So I'm quite positive on the outlook for, for commodities in that area, you know, in the, in the investment side of uh, business investment side of things.
4: David, you mentioned the cash flows, the pure profits, the cash generative nature of SASL at these spot commodity prices. Do you not think it makes sense for maybe the next few periods to withhold a portion of that money, whether it be distributions via dividends or share buybacks, and spend that money for research and development on the new drivers of energy in the green economy?
7: You, you know, you're so <laughs> you're so right. Listen, for me, that is... Uh, it's, a, it's the biggest option that's available. I, 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 I'm doing something f- you know, uh, for a talk at the moment, and I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at the, the tech companies who put back about 20% of their of their profits uh, you know, to sustain the growth of their businesses. And we don't do enough of it in South Africa. And I don't think, I, I'm not sure that these uh, businesses do, uh, enough of that. So you, you're you 100% right, they should have a full division that just looks at, it, you know, creates that kind of environment. Um, so yeah, I'm on your side of that into to look, for, you know, to look for areas like it, look, they've got issues, they've got to address SASL in South Africa has to address the clean, air, you know, clean energy side of it, they've got to clean up their act and spend a lot of money doing that. But at the same time, you're right, they can look for other ways of generating, um, you know, of, of generating future revenue. Yeah, definitely.
4: On that topic, David, SASL, Net Zero, 2050 goals, is this hype, uh, investor relations, tick box exercises, or is this actually, can this actually be a reality?
7: I, I hope it's a reality, but I think getting there is going to be a lot more difficult. You know, I know that's a big argument. The big debate is whether we can actually give up fossil fuels. You know, whether we can uh, go into sustained into renewables. Uh, but it's a it's 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 so difficult for us to give that up at the at, at the stage. So I think it's going to be a big ask. But you need tough government and tough uh, management to get there. Have we got it? I don't know. It's very easy to concede when things look tough you concede. And I, I still think it's going to be a, a, a rough path to to get there. But at least it's there and they will report to it and you can address them and you can attack them every year or every six months on that. And there's nothing worse for a CEO to sit in a boardroom and be attacked by some snotty little youngster, you know, rightfully requesting, you know, asking these questions. So, yeah. They don't want to be in that position, you know. They don't want to have the arrogance of 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 being snooty because I think the youngsters have got uh, time on their sides and and they've got the the argument on their sides.
4: Last time we used pivot during this conversation, David. We're going to shift from Sassel to Anglo American Platinum. Unbelievable numbers: three hundred rand full year dividend. That's if you include the interim dividend, the full year dividend, and the special dividend. Crazy numbers. They were trading below this mark a few years ago. Your high-level analysis of the numbers—that's
7: that's commodities. You know, if you're going to follow platinum, the, the time to buy it is when they bombed out, and then when it's there, we we only see downside. We don't see upside. You know, we haven't got the courage to actually uh, believe in the future, so we miss those opportunities. You know, I think I think now we're at the level where platinum is 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 pretty high, and we've got to make the same calls, but. Again, we go back to management. Can they continue to increase production? Can they find new revenue lines? You know, can they keep costs under control? Um, hopefully, yes, you know, and sustain these kind of uh, you know these kind of profits. But they had a cracker year. I mean if if what was the rand basket up? 50-60 uh, percent or something like that? The dollar basket was was even higher. So you know can rhodium and 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 uh, palladium and all these prices maintain these kind of, uh, you know, continue to go. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, I'm quite happy at these levels, but um, then it's up to the miners. And I don't, I don't, you know, when you call me a veteran, that's how we used to operate back in the seventies and eighties where mines never had the benefit of higher prices. They had to be efficient and they had to have operational efficiencies and People bought them for a return of cash, you know, for the dividends. But I think it was a really good result. And once more, you've got to give credit to management for, for producing what they did produce.
4: Sure, David. Uh, David, more on a behavioral finance perspective, I think this stands for both Sassel and Anglo Platz. Sassel, a 17 bagger in two years, Anglo Platinum, a 10 bagger in five years. It's easy to sell on 100% or 200% gains, but that would have turned out to be a bad mistake, yet there hasn't been a bad profitable trade in history. On the contrary, positions like these can take up a disproportionate amount of your portfolio if they continue to run. Long story short, how does one know when to sell?
7: Yeah, that's, that, that's so difficult. Uh, I Look, the charter, you know, I, I look at the trend, and in both cases, the trend is still pointing upwards. And I think you've got to watch that carefully. You know, you've got to watch when the smart money leaves. <laughs> you know, that's, you know and they say the trend is your friend. But I mean, when it starts to slope the other way, all that's telling you is, listen, the smart money is getting out. And I like to follow the smart money. And at the moment, the smart money is still getting in. So I think you can just continue the journey a little longer. You know, I don't think it's time to get out yet um especially if you've had it for so long but you'll soon be able you'll soon tell when when it's uh look you know the price a year ago was actually in amplates was higher than we are at the moment so that gives you some kind of idea of 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 how volatile this can be but for the meantime just you know you don't have to get out at this stage
4: david you know i don't like to put you on the spot but just to finish off sassel or anglo platz on a five-year basis which one would you rather hold
7: I think I like Anglo Pets, yeah. Um, I, I, I prefer Anglo Pets. I don't, Cecil, there are too many moving parts. You know, there's too, there are far too many moving parts. Whereas Platinum, we can just read Platinum, Palladium, Rhodium, whatever it is. And, and also, I th- again, I think we're getting into a, uh, a period of, of good fixed investment you know, of of business investment. And that's that's one of my driving themes, you know. It translates into a lot of things, you know, electric cars, it's all around that. But I think demand for for these clean metals is going to continue.
2: This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business.
4: Andre Salias, currency expert at Treasury One. Rand is still strong. I'm seeing a lot of bull cases emerging for the Rand to go lower than 15 Rand to the dollar. Please unpack what this optimism is all about, Andre.
8: Well, I think we can start with a gold price that's almost $1,900. Uh, that's definitely a positive for the, for the Rand. If you look at the other commodities, they're also doing well, but I would single out gold. Uh, The reasons for gold being up here, in my opinion, is uh, Russia and the U.S. not sorting out what's happening in the Ukraine and people getting jittery about that. Uh, But then one other important one, uh, it's the 21st today, and in two days' time, Mr. Enoch Godongwana will speak to us. Uh, we've heard Mr Ramaposa opening Parliament. He, he sounded quite upbeat and quite optimistic. Uh, markets uh, locally generally accepted that very positively. Now, Mr Godangwana will give us uh, firstly statistics. He will tell us what the uh, overrun of uh, tax collection was uh, because of a fantastic year for the tax collection side. That will obviously impact positively on your deficits and on your borrowings as a percentage of GDP. Um, And I think those figures could even be more positive than what was anticipated during the medium-term budget speech in October. So from that side, definitely some optimism.
4: Let's go to the US now. The Fed is set to lift rates in March. Initially, the consensus was a 25 basis point hike. Given inflation is running unabated, many analysts and the Wall Street banks are now pricing in a 50 basis point move. What would a 50 basis point interest rate hike for the Fed mean for the Rand dollar price action?
8: What would it mean for the Rand? I personally think that if they go 50 basis points, it will be accepted very neutrally by the market and the market will then start pricing in uh, more moves. So doesn't really matter what the Fed does. As far as I said and what I've said before, the markets will be disappointed with what the Fed does. They can't do anything right at the moment. The markets will be disappointed. I foresee that the dollar could most probably weaken because of a 50 basis point increase because that's priced into the markets. Um, And if that's the case, then that will be positive for the RAND. We could then very well see that the euro goes back above the 114 levels, closer to the 115 levels, uh, which will be positive for emerging markets. We have also seen that we've got already a interest rate that was hiked again. Uh, we can anticipate that we could look forward to another one. Uh, and as I said before, you know, the emerging market space and a lot of other countries is ahead of what the Federal Reserve is doing. So they're on the negative, they're on the defense, uh, which makes it difficult for them.
4: The Russian, Ukraine, NATO, all of this related conflict, which currency pairs does that materially affect?
8: Well, that normally materially affects the value of the dollar. And under normal circumstances, you would see that the dollar uh, increases a bit in value, but we have seen that actually remember that uh, the last time that we spoke uh, and we looked at the euro, we were above the one fourteen levels. So we had seen a stronger euro, uh, but we are slightly cushioned against that stronger dollar because of the gold price also benefiting from turmoil like that. Uh, And us being a commodity currency uh, and also very strong on the gold side, we benefit from that. So we slightly cushioned against that movement of the dollar. Of course, if it continues and it goes into a full-scale war, uh, then we will not be cushioned, and then we will definitely see a stronger dollar because people will flight into safe haven areas.
4: What are your technicals telling you about the short-term price action, specifically in the Rand dollar price?
8: Well, we're below the 15.20. Now, you will recall that the last time we spoke, and I said, if it go below 15.20, we could very easily go to uh, sub 15. We had touched below the 15 level last week. Uh, we're now moving slightly closer uh, to the 1520 levels again. But on the top side, 1520, that was a barrier to get stronger, is now a barrier going weaker. So I would say that we're now into a new area of the 1480, 1520. Uh, With 1480 a next target and 1520 a barrier before we could go higher uh, into a range above.
4: Andre, what are you advising clients at the moment? Are you telling them to take rands to hard currencies or, or put differently, what is your long term prediction with the rand dollar or any hard currency? Is it going to be this persistent weakening that we've seen for the last 20 years? Is that set to continue?
8: I will, I'm will. i not of the opinion that that's here to continue. We must remember that at this point in time, uh, our inflation rate is lower than that of the US. So in the years that we had an inflation rate well above that of the US, the currency had to correct in value every year, at least by the inflation rate differential, to remain competitive what, with what happens in America. Overall, one can easily just say that we had to correct Uh, with the inflation differential between ourselves and our major trading counterparts. That situation is slightly reversed at the moment. And because of that, the currency does not need to give way that much. You ask me, what's my advice to, to clients? My advice has always been very, very simple. I don't advise anybody to take everything that they own and put it into a hard currency. I always advise a client... To have a balanced portfolio of investments that would include certain amounts in hard currency, certain amounts in the rand, certain amounts in equity, certain amounts in property, uh, certain amounts in money markets, certain amounts in bonds. All over, a balanced portfolio. Don't and and, and the old people that really told us this. Ages and ages and ages ago, they said, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Don't keep all your eggs in one currency either. Uh, Somebody had actually mentioned to me the other day uh, that if you go back into the Bible, uh, somewhere in the Bible it actually says that you should keep your money in more than one currency. So a very old piece of advice. Don't keep all your eggs in one basket or in one currency.
2: This Currency Focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business.
0: Today is Monday, February 21st, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Olympics wrapped up in Beijing yesterday, capping two weeks of competition and controversy. And banks pledged to fund a UN-backed ETF in the run-up to the Glasgow Climate Summit. But the money never arrived and the fund is close to failure. These banks pledged massive funding to this ETF. They put their name on this ETF to seed it for it to launch. And then the funding has yet to be met. Then companies have spent the last few years promising to address racial equity. We hear if they've delivered. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need The Beijing Winter Olympics drew to a close on Sunday. China had pledged to deliver a simple, safe, and splendid Games. Its closed-loop system was largely successful at containing the spread of COVID-19, with close to zero cases in the final days of the Olympics. But the event did not escape controversy. The U.S. led a diplomatic boycott over China's human rights record. And the International Olympic Committee was criticized for how it handled a doping scandal. Norway topped the Games with 16 gold medals. China had its best Winter Olympics result with nine golds. Italy will host the next Winter Olympics in 2026. A United Nations-backed ETF is close to collapse roughly three months after it launched. The MSCI Global Climate Select ETF debuted in November during the Glasgow Climate Summit, or COP26. The fund excludes fossil fuel companies and boosts holdings of those with lower carbon emissions. Banks like Citigroup and Santander pledged millions to help seed the new fund, but that money never arrived. The fund holds less than $2 million. And Kristen Tallman, a reporter for the FT's Moral Money, says those investors are now turning to the press for support. They said, we signed on for this. Because we were told by the U.N. that these banks would come in with their funding, and they haven't. So now we're turning towards, you know, journalists and the media. The banks say they are waiting to invest until the fund grows. But the fund's manager, Impact Shares, says that the ETF is likely to be wound down as soon as the end of next month without further investment. Kristen says the lesson of this story is to be skeptical when banks make these kinds of pledges when you read that banks are pledging this amount, kind of put that in your back pocket and then follow up on it four or five months later and maybe ask that question, is that funding been met? Has that study been, you know, finished? What's happening with that? Especially when pledges are made around huge hyped events like COP26. Kristen Tallman is a reporter with the FT's Moral Money. Corporate America vowed to spend huge sums of money to address systemic racism following the death of George Floyd in 2020. Two years later, little progress has been made. A report from consultants Creative Investment Research found that about 270 U.S. corporations pledged $67 billion towards racial equity in the last two years. But less than 1% has actually been dispersed by the start of this year. Taylor Nicole Rogers is the FT's U.S. labor inequality correspondent. She recently appeared on the latest episode of our fellow FT podcast, Working It, to talk about diversity in corporate America today. She tells Working It's host, Isabel Barrick, that diversity programs at some companies haven't had much
9: impact. It tends to be. We're going to have a training. We're going to have a listening session. We're going to celebrate Black History Month. And we're going to celebrate Latino Heritage Month. And those things are not bad in and of itself, but they don't actually change the things that people care about, which tends to be pay transparency and pay equity and culture. And when it comes to pay transparency... So I've spoken with companies who have said oh, well, we have a really large Black-white pay gap, but that's because we've only been intentionally hiring Black people for two years. So they're all at the entry level, and that's why the pay gap is so wide. Well, I don't think that's acceptable. If the pay gap is so wide because you only have Black people at the entry level, maybe you need to hire Black people at the senior level. And you could also say, well, the pay gap is so wide because We just lost our CDO, our chief diversity officer, who is the highest paid Black person at the company. And that really opened up the gap. Once again, I would say that's not good enough. And I think we're in that spot now where employers have been doing these pay equity reports more commonly for a year or two. And so now we really have to investigate why they're reporting the things that they're reporting.
0: Taylor says one way companies can keep their employees of
9: color is to establish a good work culture. If you have a good culture, then people don't have to code switch. And code switching is just when you take who you are and you suppress parts of that when you go into the workplace, especially if you aren't the typical person in the workplace. So you might change the way you dress, the way you style your hair, your accent when you speak. That way you blend in more with other people in the office. So I think from what I've heard from people of color, this has always been a big reason to switch jobs. The culture thing has always been a big reason that people switch jobs. But because of the environment we're in now, people are even more willing to switch jobs because recruiters are coming to them saying, We want you because you have a different experience. We're working really hard to fix our culture. And they're using that as a recruiting tool, which works really well on someone who feels like they are being actively excluded in their workplace.
0: Taylor Nicole Rogers is the FT's U.S. Labor and Equality Correspondent. This conversation is from the latest episode of Working It. To hear more, follow Working It wherever you get your podcasts. And before we go, if you're looking for a British ski or snowboard instructor in the Alps this year, you might be out of luck. British instructors are finding themselves frozen out of Europe because of Brexit trade negotiations. A late 2020 agreement between Britain and Brussels left out mutual recognition of the instructor's professional qualifications. Employers in Italy, France, and Austria now need to jump through extra hoops to hire British citizens. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
2: Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to The Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.